0: Welcome to The Radical Therapist. We are now at episode number 121. I'm Chris Hoff, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Today we have a great one. I'm meeting with Carol Halliwell and Ben Shanahan, who recently released an article in the Journal of Family Therapy titled Listening as Activism, Rethinking Resilience and Justice Doing as a Response to Trauma, And it's a wonderful conversation, I think you're going to get a lot out of it. But before we get there, I have a quick correction from uh, last week's episode, or last episode, episode 120, when I was talking with David Marston. It was brought up that uh, uh, Cheryl White has stepped away from the Dolwich Center, but that is actually inaccurate. Cheryl Cheryl White has not stepped away from the Dolwich Center or the Dolwich Center Foundation, Everything's going strong. What has changed is uh, Shelja Sen is the new editor of the International Journal of narrative therapy and community work. And so that's exciting new developments happening there. And I'm sure all of you listeners that might want to maybe submit an article to the International uh, Journal of narrative therapy and community work. I'm sure Shelja Sen would be happy to um, support you in doing that. So Uh, and as always, if you're listening to the show on iTunes or somewhere, Spotify, wherever you can maybe rate or review the show, uh, it always helps us if you do that. So please do that. It would be much appreciated. Uh yeah thanks so let's uh meet our guest Carol Hollowell has worked in public service in London for over 40 years as a social worker family therapist and trainer she was the consultant lead systemic family psychotherapist in London Uh, CAMHS for 15 years and has taught on systemic and family therapy courses at the Tavistock Center for 20 years as well as teaching and presenting nationally and internationally in conferences and workshops. She has close affiliations with the Family Center, the Just Therapy team in New Zealand and is committed to how we examine privilege and power in our practices and institutions. The ethical, political, and spiritual positions we take are rarely made visible in, in our work in the UK, and Carol believes that they are, these these are crucial to be aware of in all our work. And Ben Shannon is a family therapist who lives and works in Wajuk country in Perth, I think I said that right, Western Australia. He has many years of experience working primarily in social work and child and adolescent mental health contexts in London and in Perth. Ben teaches and presents nationally and internationally and is part of the teaching faculty of Partnership Projects UK the Institute of Narrative Therapy in UK, Dolwich Centre, and the Systemic Consultation Centre in Perth. He is also a supervisor with Bridges for Hope and Peace, working with psychologists and community workers in Gaza. In recent years, Ben has worked in diverse contexts. This has included work with families where child and adolescent to parent violence is a concern, foster families, And young people of diverse genders, sexualities, and bodies. He currently works with a not for profit service supporting children and young people bereaved by suicide. So, without further ado, let's meet our guests. Hi, Carol and Ben. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Chris, thanks for having us. Yeah, this is really interesting. Carol, as I understand, you're in London, correct? Currently.
1: Chilly
0: London. Yes, and and Ben is in Perth, and this is, and uh, being very flexible, making this happen. So I thank you both for being here. And three,
1: three different time zones <laughs> and three different continents is quite impressive.
0: This, this is, I have to say. Uh, okay, so I got wind of your article: listening as activism, rethinking resilience and justice doing as a response to trauma, and in the Journal of Family Therapy, I think is. Correct. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and I really uh, am interested in, in the work that you're doing and, um, and I'm glad you're here. And I guess I want to maybe start our conversation by asking you if you could provide some background on the concept of therapeutic activism uh, mentioned in the article and how it relates to listening practices and resilience. Um, I'm going to wade in
1: and, and give you a bit of if my... I- position here. Um, I'm very deeply connected to the Just Therapy team in New Zealand and have been for 25 years. Um, And I see therapy and social justice as should be very closely woven together. And I guess my concern about some therapy is that it just patches people up. And doesn't kind of bring about, um, yeah. It treats people in isolation and doesn't doesn't do anything to think about the social context or what's brought about the issues that they're facing. Doesn't return the gaze on the things that are around them. So, I, and I think that's therapeutic activism for me. Is about returning the gaze on what's going on around people.
2: Yeah, I guess for. for- for me um, sort of building on Carol's ideas is that uh, I guess I've, I've become increasingly w- worried about um, uh, how sort of, the, the, I guess, the biological, neurobiological understandings of suffering um, or descriptions of suffering have become increasingly dominant in mm. our field. And, mm. um, you know, they can I think there's something that people can, you know, some, some people find those very useful uh, and uh, so we're not suggesting that these are we need to throw out those understandings uh but but they I think there's also a real danger that people's suffering and experience becomes decontextualized and sort of depoliticized um you know I remember um Vicky Reynolds on on your podcast Chris in a conversation a line that she said that stuck with me was that um trauma takes place in a Something along the lines of trauma doesn't take place in the landscape of the brain; it takes place in a social and political landscape. Mm-hmm. And um, and if we don't attend to those um, social and political contexts, um, we're missing something really important from um, uh, you know from people's experience and and their stories. And and you know we're missing information about how people are responding to um, really awful circumstances and and that the wisdoms and the skills that are evolved in that, that can be um, help them to stand in different territories, I guess, mm-hmm. um, uh, in, in, in life. So, um, yeah, and I guess um, there's, uh, it's important to acknowledge people like the Just Therapy team, um, you know, others that are doing this work in the field that we're aware of, like Vicki Reynolds, like Alan Wade, Linda Coates, Kathy Richardson, you um, uh, you know, some, there's a lot of people in the field uh, doing this work that have, we've sort of drawn inspiration from, and including um, some of your work, Chris, and, and, um, and Justine DeRigo-Patrick's mm-hmm. uh, work um, on uh, therapeutic activism. That's uh, Those ideas have been really helpful to us too. So I guess we wouldn't want to, yeah, just want to acknowledge that there's been a lot of thinkers um, from all over uh, that have been influential, as well as, um, I think I'd want to mention my colleagues in... Um, uh, in Australia, um, Talia Drum Butler, um, Carolina Johnston, and Ani Barb Wingard, um, and uh, their their work, uh, three Aboriginal women uh, doing some fantastic work, um, and they've they've written a lovely book called Aboriginal Narrative Practice, which is uh, which is worth worth getting hold of. Yeah, so there's mm-hmm. some of the
0: ideas that
2: have shaped our thinking about
0: activism in therapy. Wonderful. Uh, you both kind of referenced or uh, mentioned uh, this idea of the gays, um, and, and in the article, you do mention the, the importance of returning the gaze to the political and social context in which harm occurs, and I'm wondering if you can explain how this perspective can help us better understand and address trauma and resilience, and maybe some ideas about maybe people that are new to this sort of practice. like. Um, how to begin to kind of um, step into doing that kind of work.
1: It's funny, I was seeing a family today, um, and I said, I would say to them what I said to you. I've never met a woman or a child who's been subjected to sexual violence who doesn't at some point think it's their fault. Mm. This was a conversation with a 10-year-old. And the conversation that I have with people in those situations is, how come that idea has got some has travelled why do we think that has travelled and of course it's linked with mother blaming and the ownership of women women's bodies and the colonization of women's experience so there's something about being able to think how come that idea has captured people what what's what, and what why is it? I'm going to start talking about Foucault at 10 o'clock at night here <laughs> for God's sake. But you know, how come those ideas have got inside people? And how do we help them see actually why, why do we think women think that? Would you think that if that had happened to your friend rather than if it's happened to you? And they tend to say not. So there's something about a spirit of inquiry, I think, is how kind of wide. Begin to think about that. i be interested to you know what you. I had no idea what Ben's going to say. I'm quite interested in this.
2: But <laughs> no idea what I'm going to say either, Carol. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
2: I um, uh, can you can you repeat the question for
0: me, Chris? Yeah, yeah, just kind of you know maybe asking about the importance of this gaze and returning the gaze to the political and social context in which harm occurs and. And, you know, just for people, we we have a lot of therapists and training that listen to this yeah. podcast and, yeah. you know, how, you know, how that, pers- you know, mentioning, it, maybe laying out how that perspective can help address trauma and resilience and how you might begin to lean into that kind of practice.
2: Yeah. Okay. Um, I guess. Uh, okay, the, 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 the The title of the paper that we wrote became sort of listening as activism, right. um, because there's, uh, I guess there's a lot of emphasis on our field about asking the right question. Mm. Um, but um, uh, so I guess that the more we thought about um, an experience of working with a family, w- w- which was uh, incredibly incredibly painful in many ways for them and and uh uh you know and we sort of were in that pain with them but it was also very invigorating and uh inspiring um for, for us and it was we kind of got really interested in thinking about well what it was what was happening in these conversations that was contributing to our experience and and uh and contributing to the family finding ways of of, of healing together um from um, awful hardships and I guess um it was you know listening out for Um, listening out for how people are responding in very small ways to, um, and sometimes not so small ways, to to hardships. Um, The sort of making visible, like Carol was saying, sort of some of the the take-for-granted ideas that Mm. might be kind of, you know, colonising the meanings that people were giving or shutting down, narrowing the meanings that Mm. were possible for people to make or to attribute to to their actions or to experiences, whether these were... um, uh, you know, ideas that they were damaged or they were broken um, um, or the, you know, families were were destined to, or the, the relationships were, um, uh, you know, in tatters or that, uh, you know, Mother Blame, Carol mentioned, that these these are all ideas that have a social, political context. These are discourses that are shaping people's, you know, taking granted ideas that are shaping the meanings people are giving um, to these experiences. So kind of trying to make those visible and ask people, about their relationship with them, where they come from, you know, where they get their support from, um, and I guess creating a bit of distance between, allowing these stories to totalize people's identities, and 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 sort of instead asking them to to take a position on what they think these ide these ideas do to women, for example, or they do to men, or whatever that may be. And I guess you know thinking about how we can start to do this in practice is, I guess in in by um, Tuning our listening into into some of those things and and slowing things slowing our conversation down to you know, loyalty with intent, as Michael White used to say, mm-hmm. um, in in these small 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 moments, small actions, and, and asking um, intentional questions that that might help to bring some of these taken for granted ideas into the conversation. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Thanks.
2: That's a good question.
0: Yeah. Yeah also in the article, and I find this very interesting and intriguing, the idea of um, vicarious resilience, which I've heard of before, but you go into writing about this. And I wonder if you could share some examples or insights on how individuals can experience uh, vicarious resilience and why it's valuable.
1: I think, you know, I think there's one of the questions that I think the field is yet to answer. Is the impact of those powerful therapeutic conversations where you've connected on everybody's brains, the therapists and the, you know and the people participating in the conversation? Because I think you know with, not just with the family that we've talked about, but in other works when I'm in those conversations where I'm listening out for people's res- responses that have perhaps not been made visible and we're, we're slowly making them visible. I can feel myself absolutely engaged. And we we talked a bit about that when we worked with the family, we were were just so engaged, nothing in the world mattered. Um, And came away with a kind of energy that I couldn't have described. And, you know, when people would say, yes, but it must be very traumatized working with that. And I think, I don't feel traumatized. I I feel I feel there's something slightly fizzing that's that I'm gaining new understanding and and I think that's we hit i think you hit on some writings about vicarious resilience Ben, didn't you, and we began to think maybe that's what's going on
0: mm.
2: yeah i i um because of course there's so much talk in our field about vicarious trauma right, isn't right. there and we kind of um uh we're, we're, we're kind of not convinced that's a, a particularly well. It, it's it's an experience. It's what's a it's a way of describing a particular experience. Um, but we kind of became also interested in some of the discourses that might contribute to people experiencing vicarious trauma, and um, the you know the ways in which or the possibility that thinking about um, uh, people as as being um, as being damaged internally or neurologically or biologically by suffering. Um, creates certain obligations, I think, in practitioners to to, to try and fix and heal and uh, mend something that's broken, um, mm-hmm. which is really, you know, can be really hard both for the practitioner and for the person um, uh, in, and in the it, centre. And
1: those, and those discourses colonise therapists, mm. you know, yeah. those discourses about vicarious trauma. And it wasn't what we were experiencing. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, we we had to start thinking about it.
2: Yeah. So we kind of we got we got interested in in how you know the stories that what you know I guess what we give attention to how we you know what we listen out for um, and what we shine our attention uh, on in conversations uh, how that shapes experiences of what gets called vicarious trauma or vicarious resilience you know if we're focusing on um, uh, more damage centered internalized understandings of uh, uh, pain and suffering. Uh, that may not lead us towards a, an experience of resilience, but if we're we're able to sort of both hold space for the um, you know emotional pain that people are experiencing, whilst also able to um, you know uh, shine a light on the on the actions that they're taking, on the ways that they're responding uh, to hardship, on the meanings of those, mm-hmm. uh, the history of their ability to take these sorts of actions in response to uh, violence or oppression. And how this is connected to other people in, in their life. Um, these are very different territories to be standing in with people um as uh you know as they're navigating uh, experiences of hardship. Um so um yeah, the, the I think the we, we came onto the writings about vicarious resilience um, by a colleague, colleague of ours um, introduced us to those, Claudia Ferrero, who's a um family therapist in the UK which is a Colombian family therapist and um and those writings of, about vicarious resilience were about uh you know interviews with with therapists who were working with survivors of um, political violence pl- torture um, people who had been kidnapped and um and, and about the potential for for, for, the, for therapists to experience a sense of resilience by witnessing um the ways in which people were surviving so um uh, yeah, th- these these I think these are really interesting ideas to be thinking about And you know I guess also um, uh, it's uh, it's an invitation to us to, to listen out for these things in different ways. And certainly it was our experience, this, this sort of this this way of listening out for people's um, initiatives and um, resistance and is is really generative for us helps to sustain us in the work
1: yeah. What's interesting, Chris, in the process of writing the paper, We started to talk much more about resistance rather than resilience. Mm. Mm. And then we got, you know, it took years to kind of sort out where we were with that. But there is something about, you know, hearing people's small acts of resistance, um, which link with all the ideas about small acts of hope as well that our colleagues in the States have talked about, felt terribly significant. And they traveled very differently in our conversations and, and, you know, in the writing the paper and how we how we stayed ethically very close to the um, family's words and what we had to do with that. And what was interesting for both of us about it is that there's very little guidelines about how you do that.
0: Hmm.
1: We felt like we had to make it up very carefully, step by step. It's interesting how academic journals don't—they don't really attend to that.
0: Right. And you, you, you did bring up hope, Carol, and, and the article suggests that hope and resilience can be seen as actions aligned with ethics. And I, I kind of wrote something. how so you, you describe them as ethical strivings. I like that. And how do you, how do you define these actions, and how can they be fostered in folks and communities? could be a big
1: question i was just thinking about i think the word that you use chris stayed with me is about communities because you know we we worked with the families within a community of colleagues because we work within a public health service and we have a team a multidisciplinary team at our disposal so so those discourses are about community for us and about how we help families who are in these kind of situations to reconnect with a sense of community with each other. And and I think that's something to do with hope so that we don't, I think there's a phrase that we got rather attached to about the individualization of suffering, that we got very worried how it's located in individuals and actually thinking about how hope is done Mm -hmm. and how each family member Listen to each other's acts of resistance, some of which were quite something, and were in awe of each other. Now that's community building in a way. I don't know what. What do you think then? Yeah.
2: Well, the um, uh, uh, the, you mentioned um, uh, ethical striving. Sort of thinking about resilience as ethical striving, um, and this is uh, this is a, a sort of phrase that we borrowed from Alan Jenkins. Um, okay. Uh, who does fantastic work with um, uh, perpetrators and uh, victim survivors of, of violence uh, in, in Australia, and writes very beautifully about that. And uh, he's written um, some great papers on resilience. And, and so this was uh, an idea from him that, that, that resilience is is about people striving or taking action in line with what they give value to in life. Mm. You know that he describes it as ethical strivings. Um, and it does I guess it doesn't mean necessarily that people have to um, uh, you know achieve something in particular but they're taking action that that fits with an ethical starts that they're taking um, so and I, I guess we're talking about how we're talking about um, ethical striving being related to action and um, Uh, and also thinking about um, Katie Weingarten's writings about hope and you know she describes that you know hope is something that we uh, that we can do and we that we do with others and um, so we became interested in in the relationship I guess between resilience and hope and or whatever you call the actions that people are taking you know it's not up to us to to sort of name what they're doing but um, but we're interested in the possibility that you know it's possible to to do resilience or to do hope when you don't feel it um, or and or to have others do it for you in those situations mm. when you can't, when mm. it's not maybe unreasonable to expect someone to feel resilient or to feel hopeful. Um, so these were um, some ideas that, yeah, were um, we were really interested in.
1: And part um, of the writing the paper, whether with, you know, in deep collaboration with the family, they were very clear that joining us in those conversations was part of their ethical strivings and part of what they wanted other people to know. Mm. Um, uh, And, you know, when we were very, very careful about, we were always very clear that at any point they could pull the plug. Mm. And that was that. You know, we, we were very clear that we were accountable back in that way or they could say, no, you can't use those words or you can use those words, you can't use that transcript, you can't use that. But they wanted, um, they wanted people to know, they really wanted people to know how therapy could be done in a way that people could feel a sense that they could go forward and do justice. And that was part of their ethical strivings. To this day, I think they'd say that, Ben.
2: Yeah, and I think you know, it got me thinking that um, coming, you know, coming back to this notion of of listening as activism, there's there's an ethical striving, uh, you know, in us as practitioners, I guess, in the listening that we're doing, um, which is kind of um, uh, which contributes to to growing resilience. I think you know, in relationships, and certainly, you know, it helped us as practitioners working with the family and our work with the family that we describe in the paper. Um, it was our own sort of striving to do our ethics um, in listening out for, um, you know, people's ethical strivings was an ethical striving of our own, I guess, you know, that was sustaining um, of us that contributed to that sort of, you know, vicarious resilience. So um, there's something I think that mirrors the journey that, um, that the family were on in therapy to our own journey, I guess, that's uh, the... Uh, that, that was really important, and that, I guess that we wanted to sort of shine a bit of a light on in the paper as well. So, you know, not only giving attention to a family's, a person's ethical strivings, is an ethical striving from the practitioner in and of itself, mm-hmm. which has an effect, it's a generative effect. That's great. Yeah. Can sustain in the work. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um... I'm wondering if, you know, I did mention that we do have a lot of people in training that are listening to this, and I'm wondering if you could provide some advice or strategies for listeners who are interested in incorporating these ideas into their own lives or work, and uh, particularly in the area of maybe promoting personal agency and resilience.
1: Yeah, I, we were talking about <laughs> some of your questions before we joined you, Chris, Um and I think these days we would talk about resistance rather than resilience, okay, you know, resistance okay. to, to the kind of um, dominant discourses that oppress people or the meanings or the colonization of how therapy colonizes people. So, you know, how trainees really think about the power issues in therapy mm. and, and the words that they're using, they could be colonizing families' meanings They could be jumping over what families want to say um and i think there's something about personal agency i think we would probably use the words as joint action and joint meaning so helping chinese think about what how are you doing joint action with this family Hmm. not how are you understanding them but how are you doing joint action how are you co-constructing meanings together in those rather particular
2: terms and i guess i was thinking um uh i guess maybe an invitation to to people that are interested in these practices is is to be thinking about some of the, the the ideas that that shape um shape their listening you know what some of the the, the big ideas are that, that 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 both within their agency you know because i think that there's there's something really formative about the the agency that the context that we're working in um in addition to the the theoretical ideas our own sort of uh, values you know there there are way, all of these ideas position the way that we are with people and i guess and, and shape the way that we listen um uh, to people and filter out certain things at the expense of privileging others. Um, so, um, I had a lovely experience of being invited to do a workshop um, last week uh, in the UK with some uh, about some of these ideas. And one of the questions that we put to um, to people and in, in, in small group exercises was to to, to notice uh, or think about a time where they. I can't remember the exact question, but you might be able to help me, Carol, with that. But at a time that that they would have that they missed an opportunity to pick up on a small act of resistance, or what could have been resilience, or something that was a bit that didn't sort of quite fit with a problem story, or you know maybe it was a, an example of them responding to to an oppressive um, relationship, or 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 something you know, oppressing them in their life and um to think about what discourses might have gotten in the way of them picking up on that at the time or what ideas might have gotten in the way of them noticing it mm-hmm. um and then to be thinking about what um what was what made it possible for them to be able to identify that now as they're thinking about it what is it about their own ethics or what really matters to them in their work that would explain to us how they're able to recognize this
1: now or their own communities
2: other
1: communities, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, talking with therapists, how do you build? A, in those lovely uh, talking words of Vicky, how do you build a, a team of solidarity around you, where people mm-hmm. can help you listen out when you, when for some reason your your listening is closed down or you you've you're overwhelmed by the agencies dominant discourse and some ways of seeing things how do you build a community of people to help you resist that and to help you keep an eye out for hope mm. or to keep an eye out for small actions it's not possible to do it alone mm. it would be my contention you know if I think about all the colleagues I've worked with in our con- in our west london context and internationally that that's what's needed sometimes
2: mm. Yeah, and I, I I guess um you know the, the other thing that comes to mind Chris is is sort of uh thinking about those ideas that that um uh you and colleagues have, have written about um about whether we do activism through countering sort of introducing um our own sort of uh, ideas and ethics or you know about around social issues or whether we um, might uh privilege the the therapeutic relationship and, and the meanings that people are uh, are making themselves of their experience, and um, I guess it, it just had me thinking um, about, uh, you know, another another Vicky Reynolds quote, is, which is, "Anything's a weapon if you hold it right," <laughs> and um, mm. that you know, that, and you know, that idea that that um, uh, that we can be colonising by doing these practices right, right. in ways that riots sort of roughshod over the. Um, over the meanings that people are making themselves, you know, if we uh, if we rob them of that authorship, the, you know, the storytelling rights to be making sense of their own experiences, even if it's at odds with what we think might be happening through a social justice lens or through the way that we're analysing power relations, making, I guess, really wanting to think about how we make space for people to make their own meanings. And and maybe, you know, I, I wonder sometimes it's it can be useful just to be Starting with asking permission about whether it's okay to ask about something um, uh, that we see, uh, you know, happening. Or oh, I just noticed, you know, that, that you um, uh, you might be noticing a particular action. Is that okay if I if I can ask some questions about that? Because um, sometimes what we're interested in uh, and what we might think are significant actions aren't significant or of interest to the people that we're talking about. Right. Um, so um, you know, maybe that's a good starting point. Uh, as well
1: for these yeah. uh, I think I've, I think I've been saying to and I do say to my trainees and, <laughs> and look you need a community of people to resist the cult of individualism mm. because the cult of individualism is all around us and we're breathing it so you need a community of people to help you resist this because in the majority world i.e. the not the white western world the cult of individualism is not there so you've got to really think about how this takes you over, and how you build a community of colleagues, hopefully mm. diverse colleagues, to help you not do that. Mm. Um, because you know these individualistic ideas are not going to work, and because they colonise people. Mm. You know my just therapy team would very clearly say, um, uh, we will have quite a powerful critique of some Western psychology ideas. Mm. That's yeah, nice
0: to... and I also, and I am biased, so because you know we did write that article, but also I did appreciate you bringing that up and how even in the effort to do justice, we might be um, co- colonizing, quite honestly, <laughs> you know, in different different sorts of ideas that we think are progressive or what have you. But yeah, you know, and I don't think we talk enough about that in mm-hmm. in our field. So. Um, All right. So you, I guess I'm going to ask, go back to listening and how listening practices that focus on justice rather than pathologizing contribute to healing and recovery for people who have experienced trauma or oppression. And what might you say about that shift in focus and, and, you know, how, how do we begin to listen differently? Um, I know with a lot of the uh, people to come train at California Family Institute. I do say in the front that we're gonna we're gonna work on you know s- learning a different language in a lot of ways, externalizing language, and also listening differently. How do we listen? You know, for the absent but implicit, for example, that kind of thing. So I'm wondering what 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 your thoughts are about that.
1: You want to start,
2: Ben? Sure. Um, I guess um, where to start with is that, that there's a few ideas I guess that um, come to mind with that question Chris um what uh, I guess we had we had some experiences of um working with families who have experienced sexual violence who have um and we've been alongside them in going through um and navigating criminal proceedings mm-hmm. and um it's been a, a real interesting journey um for us sort of both witnessing the the, the you know uh, fantastic ways in which police services and uh, um, and the courts have sometimes been able to respond to uh, these crimes that have been committed against families, but also recognising the shortfalls of the criminal justice system to deliver justice to families. Um, and um, there's been, uh, I guess, we've gotten interested in. Uh, how how justice might be done outside of the uh you know criminal justice system for families who have experienced um these crimes in, in many ways and um i guess moving if we if we're just thinking about uh diagnosing uh sufferings medicalizing suffering uh it limits possibilities um for you know there's something important about that i think about um uh joining the medical discourse when it comes to uh you know criminal proceedings that sort of thing for these crime because it, there's 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 a particular discourse that where suffering gets recognized through that lens um but also when we're starting to um think more in a more nuanced way about relations of power uh, and the contexts in which harm occurs in these relationships, um, we start to also discover stories of uh, resistance and the ways in which people have uh, refused to accept what has been happening to them. Their sort of skills and being able to discern what is what's wrong or what love is and what love isn't. Um, uh, I mean, these these are really um, very, very important. These are very important. We've found territories to be leaning into with people, um, and and in terms of you know how people have been able to maintain connections with things that matter to them and the people that they love, uh, in the face of um, violence and, and and efforts to alienate and silence and isolate them. Uh, and these these are really rich territories to be exploring with people. And I think it's it's um, we have an ethical responsibility to be making. Uh, making room for these uh explorations uh, and and i guess we take the story we take the position we're very interested in in the story how the stories we tell um you know shape shape reality really and a constitutive of reality rather than representational of it, that sort of social, social constructionist point of view so if we're kind of if we're taking um taking on that idea then uh, of course the stories that people tell about their lives and these experiences have a profoundly formative effect on the way on their identity, on the way they uh, see the world and themselves, and so um, uh, you know that the story, you know, creating stories um, that uh, have their green shoots in these contexts um, around justice, around um, how people are responding, rather than just that sort of pathologizing discourse. I think is a real ethical um, responsibility that we have. Sorry, walking on a bit there, but time. Uh, what are your thoughts, Carol?
1: <laughs> well, I was thinking about um we're, you know, where it's it's as if we're invited to think that it's the criminal justice system that decides whether the actions were wrong or not. Mm-hmm. When I've not I just just today I was talking with a young girl about um how she was able to say very clearly I always knew it was wrong so that's a wonderful entry point isn't it about how did you know it was wrong even though you were being silenced you were being coached into silence you were being frightened how did you manage to hold on to that notion that it was wrong and I mean those those entry points are so delicate and yet so powerful because that in itself is justice doing knowing those actions were wrong, uh, and how come, you know, the wisdom of an eight-year-old? How come you know that? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's something about what what that does to create that story about their wisdom.
0: Yeah, such a different story. I think there's there's something
2: really beautiful and powerful about the wisdom of children, in uh, in these you know in, in in these contexts. I guess as, as family therapists, we're working with. Uh, with children and with families all the time, um, and uh, it's often you know those sorts of those sorts of comments by ten-year-olds or um, that have such a profound impact on the adults in the, fa- in the family of naming something just without you know so innocently and but so clearly is um, you know there's such powerful little entry points.
1: Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I think, Chris, I loved your question about training Mm -hmm. because, you know, I don't know how you train people. You know, we've all had that experience, haven't we, when there's a little opening in front of us and you've got to be really quick sometimes to catch Mm -hmm. it before it goes and to bring it back and ask permission to linger in it or... To park it and help your t- have your team help you, and I think that's something that's really important in training. But let's notice the things that we almost missed. Mm.
0: Yes, that's great. Um, you mo- you mentioned being in a multidisciplinary team, and I know there's many listeners that are probably in such contexts as well. And and I'm wondering what are uh, some of the challenges or misconceptions you've encountered in applying a. Kind of a post-structural orientation to trauma and resistance and how you have addressed them do you want to run with that one carol
1: well it didn't happen to us chris hmm. Hmm. you know we we work in a a, a health service that, that prides itself on collaboration and putting the patient at the center of things and and certainly in the uk context there is a a sense that the public own the health service so hmm. They expect a collaboration. They expect a decent service because they paid for it through their taxes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And there's a that. So you know, we weren't having to manage that. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the paper. Whether people start to really give us some grief about it, because they might. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, I think I, I think that sense of look, we've got to have the totality of the. Of the young people and the family's experiences with us in the work would have been accepted in our MDT for sure. Mm. For Absolutely for, for sure. In fact, you know, quite often we come out of very painful and difficult family sessions and our MDT will be waiting for us having made the tea and bought the chocolate. Mm. So, you know, there's just sort of something about knowing that that is in the work. Or sometimes our MDT will be apologising to us. Oh my God, I'm really sorry. We sent this fabric to you. So there's because they because they knew the power of it. But I think there's something about that sense of ethical striving there. I don't know, Ben. Uh, did you remember any kind of challenges to that or
2: misconceptions? No, I, I, not not. Uh, I think we were very fortunate in in the team mm. um, that we, we were around us. That um, that there was that sort of, we didn't feel, there wasn't a sense of sort of ideas sort of competing with what we were doing. Um, mm. Anyway, there was, uh, was a lot of collaboration. I guess, you know, what, what part of your question, Chris, was about sort of misconceptions, about a post-structural um, uh, mm. approach to, um, to to suffering and, and uh, to trauma. And I guess I was um, thinking maybe a little bit more widely um, about, some possible misunderstandings, but I, I guess I was thinking that um, what one one idea was that uh, a misconception might be that there's no room for post-structural understandings to exist alongside uh, structuralist understandings. Um, so, you know, perhaps um, more understandings of, of uh, suffering that are based in the neurobiology of trauma. Um, it, I guess it doesn't, we wouldn't say that, that that the the two ways of thinking are mutually exclusive because that they these are just different ideas, these are sets of ideas. Um and uh and, you know I would say it's really up to um up to us to work out what's going to be most resonant and useful to the people that we're talking to. Um uh you know, I guess that's kind of that, that part of adopting a post structural approach is is making, you know, within a postmodern frame is making room for lots of different ways of making meaning, I guess. Um, so that maybe that would be one, fits. and maybe that's something the that. Um, yeah. Say Again, Carol.
1: The meaning that fits is really powerful, I think. Yeah. In that yeah. Structural orientation.
2: Yeah. So wanting to find ways of yeah um, that that sort of sense finding that sense of fit um, for people, um, I guess it was it was also we we're just talking um, uh, uh, Carol and I before about how. Uh, when people think about uh, people you know think about narrative approaches to therapy as being you know as a post structural approach, of course, and um one of the uh, ways in which um externalizing practice, for example, gets taken up sometimes i think is is more of a technique yeah, um, right. uh, rather than an ethic and um and and it often doesn't work as a technique or it doesn't work as a technique without um an externalizing idea of post structural approach is an ethical orientation i guess um, and uh, coming back to listening uh, i guess thinking about separating making the problem the problem or the you know an idea a problem or exploring a, a person's relationship with a problem or an idea or you know, those sorts of things this is this is something an ethic i guess that really shapes our listening mm. um, and um uh, yeah making the problem the problem, not the person, so creating that yeah that yeah. distance so
0: all right, a couple more questions for you. I know it's getting late in London, Carol, so <laughs> but uh how do you envision the future of practice and the work of therapeutic activism, listening practices, and you know um searching for resistances? How are you thinking about the future sure? Do you want to go, yeah. Carol? Shall I? No,
1: you know I ever think.
0: Okay. Um,
2: I, I guess. Well, one hope is that that these um, these practices um, and you know ideas about how we do you know opportunities to to be doing activism and therapy. We'd hope that they continue to grow, and there are there and and the conversations about this and how it can be done continue to grow. Um, you know, I, I think a hope of mine would be that. Um, part of doing activism in therapy is returning the gaze on the therapeutic practices themselves. Mm-hmm. So, returning the gaze on therapeutic activism is a form of activism, mm-hmm. I would say, in therapy. In the same way that we're looking to return a gaze on other um, other therapeutic approaches that may not side with justice, um, that may be leaning more towards sort of pathologizing suffering. You know, we. we Equally, want to encourage people to return the gaze on on those um, the practices we're describing, um, but also, uh, and I may be one of the hopes of that is is that um, I guess things politically, uh, globally, and I think within our profession are becoming increasingly polarised um, all the time. There's less and less debate. There's more, much more um, interest in who's right and wrong, and um, so you know a, a hope I would have about um the notion of activism in therapy is that we might be able to do it in ways that helps to grow connections um rather than sort of contribute to um polarization of uh practices and and ideas um that would be uh you know that would be a hope that I'd have for how it might evolve yeah, I, like I don't that. know how that will happen <laughs> um uh but uh it's it's a hope maybe happen in one step at a time in one conversation at a time
0: there's your next paper um,
2: <laughs> the next paper. <laughs> there's something That's about so- how we hold these ideas that is it's really you know there's a responsibility that comes with holding these ideas and uh we have to hold them carefully with the people that we're talking to i guess i
1: think i think ben's nailed it rather nicely but I think there's an ethical responsibility to return the gaze on therapeutic practice. Um, and it makes me think of a very big conversation I had some years ago with Tamalai Kiwi Tamasisi, where we talked for hours about the overlap on and the differences between post-structuralism and decolonization. Mm-hmm. And I think we have a responsibility to think about decolonizing practices in therapy because therapy has been colonising people's meanings and the way they live their lives for long enough. Um, So I think, you know, there is just something about keeping the conversation open about, are are we still colonising people's meanings, particularly from people who are living in the global majority? You know, what are we doing with that? And, And are we returning the gaze on the therapeutic practice? And I think that's, you know that's a lot of what um anti barb certainly did at dulwich and it's a lot of what the Just therapy team did and i think that's this is part of that 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 is part of therapeutic activism is to think about how we decolonize therapy and, and think about decolonizing theories as well that are helpful to trainees of the future
0: wonderful Okay, last question. I like to ask it of all my guests, and that is, uh, what books, films, stinkers, et cetera, what's capturing your attention these days?
1: This was the most difficult question you (laughs) sent. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I came up with this, which was written a few years ago. It's Alistair Bush and Wirimunayani's book on collaborative and indigenous mental health therapy uh-huh. i think it's an absolutely fabulous book and i think you should interview them That's okay my next i question.
0: appreciate it i always appreciate that referrals It's
1: yes. a really very very powerful read having met both of them um what else did i say when we talked about this ben <laughs> which we, we did have a conversation i've just completely forgotten what i said mm. now
2: um I can't remember either but I can yeah it, that's was definitely well we, we talked about that being one of our favorite books um at the Oh moment. we that's, talked uh, we talked
1: we talked about um, Talia's book as well didn't we
2: Yeah it's, um uh, so this is uh Talia Drum Butler uh Barbara Wingard and Carolina Johnston um and Aboriginal narrative practice um is a really wonderful book I um, would highly recommend um, and, uh, the, the most recent book that I've read, um, which I really enjoyed, um, sort of, uh, was, was, Arundhati Roy's, uh, The God of Small Things, mm. um, that was, uh, uh, sort of gripping and discomforting and, um, really, uh, engaging and interesting. And yeah, I, I, that was, uh, that was, that was a great book, um. But yeah, I guess there's some of the <laughs> couple of things that are capturing our attention at the
0: moment. Wonderful. Well, thank you both of you for making. I know it's you're both on very different time zones, and I appreciate you making the time. And um, I guess I do have one last question: If people want to reach out to you and have um, and, and maybe get the article or what have you, how how, how would they find the both of you? I think, our, I think our emails are on the yeah. paper okay i think oh yours is carol i don't think mine is um
2: but um uh i can i mean i i'm happy for you to put my email address in the show notes sure i can um, do that is, yep. Yep. Um, and we can maybe put both of our emails in the show notes and yeah would really welcome anyone uh, reaching out to us that are interested in these ideas or um have any questions or or critique to offer the the the, the From the paper, Um, but the other papers in in the Journal of Narrative Therapy, people can. um, in the Journal of Family Therapy. (laughs) Journal of Family Therapy. (laughs) Journal of Family Therapy. Sorry, Journal of Family Therapy.
0: Um, And I'll provide a link to that uh, too, as well. Yeah,
1: Chris, I've been. I'd like to know what piqued your interest to interview us.
0: Well, be, because I happen to be a co-author on a paper that f- kind of talked about therapeutic activism. And yeah. when other people yeah. are kind of beginning to write uh, writing about that, I'm very, very interested. And I uh, yeah. saw the paper and wanted to reach out to you and, and hear yeah. more about your that, ideas. Yeah,
1: it had some echoes for you, huh?
0: Yeah, f- absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you, both of you. And um, I really appreciate you making Thanks, the time Chris. to come on the show. Yeah. Thank you.
2: Thanks.
0: All right. That's our show. And as always, thanks for listening. And please come find The Radical Therapist on Instagram or Facebook or that's pretty much it, I think. Um, I'm on threads now if you want to go do that, but I'm not very active there, so, but, uh, but there's ways you can engage. And if you have any questions, comments, reaching out, want some stickers, I got a bunch of new stickers, forgot to mention that. Uh, you can email me at the radical therapist at gmail.com. Uh, and I think that's it. And please rate and review the show. There's new YouTube videos up. If you want to go watch the radical therapist on YouTube, me doing some things on different stuff, be pretty much appreciated if you went over to YouTube and uh, subscribe to the channel, like, share it, that kind of stuff. So, uh, that's all I've got as always. Thanks for listening. Peace.